In the lands of Middle-earth, legend tells of the Dark Lord Sauron and the ring that would give him the power to enslave the world. Lost for centuries, it has been sought by many and has now found its way into the hands of the most unlikely person imaginable. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands in darkness. What must I do? The ring must be destroyed. The ring must be cast back into the fires of Mount Doom. There is evil there that does not sleep. Sauron's forces are already moving. They will find the ring and kill the one who carries it. No! Frodo! Come on, Frodo! I cannot do this alone. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. This task was appointed to you. And if you do not find a way, no one will. The enemy has many spies. Birds. Beasts. Something draws near. I can feel it. Get off the road! Hide! You must remember, Frodo. The ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Let us hope that our presence may go unnoticed. Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. I'm Johanna. And I'm David. Hey, Rosie, what have you been watching since last time? Well, I watched my nieces for my sister recently, and my eight-year-old really likes The Suicide Squad. So we watched The Suicide Squad this week. That was a lot of fun. I never really saw it all the way through and didn't actually get to see it all the way through through this time but this time i saw the first half the last time i saw the second half so all together i've seen the whole thing just want to point out that i thought it was really cool that my niece johnny picked that movie out and that she already likes superhero movies at age eight i haven't actually watched either of the suicide squad films i did appreciate that they included Harley Quinn. I think she was the perfect addition to the team. She wasn't in the comics that I remember. I remember like a bunch of second rate, like Captain Boomerang type characters being members of the Suicide Squad originally. But what I did notice in the trailer, 
at least the first time around with the Suicide Squad, was that in the comics, they're sent on missions by this woman named Amanda Waller. Mm -hmm. And her nickname was The Wall because she was like this big, heavy set, wide looking woman that took no crap. And I noticed they replaced her with a sort of athletic looking African-American woman. Right. And I'm like, that's not the wall. Did they fix that in the second one? Okay. And I haven't seen the second one. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, I've seen bits and pieces of the first one. And I've had this discussion in the past with people uh, about the whole Harley Quinn Joker thing. I find, I personally find it problematic, you know, because I feel like it's glorifying an abusive relationship, which, you know, was rectified, I guess, because Harley Quinn did eventually ditch the Joker and, you know, she, she dropped the zero, but I found that so problematic for so long. So it was kind of nice that in the movie, she did kind of break up with him and like go on, go out on her own. But that's the cool thing about Harley as a character is her friendship with Poison Ivy and how that draws her out of this abusive relationship with the Joker. Right, right, exactly. Which I ignorantly made comments about that before I knew any about that, anything about that. I'll say on social media for those who follow me on social media at all. Like I had made comments about that in the past, but that was an ignorant statement because I wasn't aware of the female empowerment aspect of that amongst the bad girls. <laughs> That's what I've been up to. That was the one movie I had, I had seen with my nieces and that was just so much fun. I have been binging a series on YouTube called Pitch Meetings, which is produced by Screen Rant, this guy, Ryan George. So just full on geek love shout out to someone in the biz who clearly loves movies, loves the insider knowledge around movies and has a real flair for comedy about tropes and storytelling. And my son and I have just been watching video after video I haven't watched the ones for Lord of the Rings yet because I want to wait until we get through this whole series. But if any of you haven't watched the pitch meeting series, it is so good. Uh, I've seen some of the pitch meeting uh, YouTube videos and they are very funny. Lately, I've been listening to a podcast called What You Into. And as many of you know, I'm from the Cincinnati area originally. And this podcast is done by someone in the Cincinnati area named Anthony Tank, Tank Mansfield. Yep. Tank, I think, is mm -hmm. a nickname I guess he gave to himself. I have no idea. Anyway, he uh, it's kind of interesting because I get to hear about people in places from the town I grew up in that I live a thousand miles from now or something. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a fun little podcast because the guests he has on the show are a lot like our kind of peeps you know they're into like Gundam modeling and comic books and B movies and you know a lot of nerdy stuff not that they're nerds or at least Tank isn't he's like into martial arts and not like the way that you and I are into martial arts where go watch a Sonny Chiba film no martial arts in like 
going out and actually learning jujitsu and having like kneel to no one tattooed on our body and, you know, general macho badassery kind of stuff that we don't do. But yeah, like real life Cobra Kai villains. But anyway, sorry, Tank. Uh, Love the show. This sounds like the classic nerd geek paradigm. You know, like, yeah, we might be a little geekier, but these people sound like true glorious nerds. And I love the sound of this. But just like your comment about, oh, they're not as geeky as we are. Maybe not. Maybe they are just more nerd than geek. (laughs) You know, Tank is an amazing artist, too. So if you ever get a chance to check out his work, you really should. Last year, he did a a whole bunch of really cool Cincinnati Reds-themed stickers. So, like, I actually ran down to their house and picked some up. Tank was an announcer for the Cincinnati Roller Girls, which I play for Black and Bluegrass. So they're kind of like our sister team in the tri-state, almost literally, if if you knew the history. He was also an art teacher at one point. So, interesting guy. Love him. Hi, Tank. Well, enough about what you're into. What we're into on this podcast is movies, particularly of the nerdy variety. So we're going to do Lord of the Rings. But we always contextualize things on this show, so we have to talk about one more version of the Fellowship of the Ring that we have not yet discussed, and that is Chronitelli. Chronitelli was the Russian adaptation of the Fellowship of the Ring. I think it roughly translates to the Keepers or the Guardians. So can someone give us some background to what, what the heck this is? Okay, um, so I'll just go into what was going on in Russia at the time. It was a big year of change in Russia because the U.S. and USSR signed the START Treaty to reduce nukes in both countries. Negotiations began on that back in 1982. Also, 1991 was the year the first steps were taken to basically dissolve the USSR. In previous months, different republics in the Union began to declare independence Eventually, Gorbachev resigned, and Boris Yeltsin won the first popular vote in the first free election in Russia. So a lot of change went on during that period of time. So maybe that was one of the last state-run television made-for-TV films ever aired. (laughs) It's almost difficult to imagine how this production would have come about in the age of the Internet. Content is so widely available now, and everyone is free to riff on subjects, I mean, much like our own podcast. And so the idea of there being content that people were newly adapting in a strange way is hard to believe. Here's how I envision this going down. There's the fall of communism going on, everything's in chaos, and lo and behold, a bunch of nerds at the television (laughs) station in Moscow are like, Hey, no one's minding the store. Ha ha ha. Now's our chance. We are going to put on the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, so that's more or less exactly how it happened in the sense that Lord of the Rings was basically banned in Russia up until the 80s because the storyline is more or less the West unifies against an Eastern enemy who is like industrial and evil. And so the Soviet government, of course, looked at Lord of the Rings and said, oh, no, there's there's no way we're going to touch this. 
The Hobbit wasn't translated in Russian until 1976, and Lord of the Rings wasn't translated until 1982. This was getting closer to the opening up of Western ideas into Russia under Gorbachev. With his Glasnost initiatives, there were new efforts to allow freedom of speech in the USSR that had not been available before. So in the 80s, that's when Lord of the Rings really was discovered by the general Russian public. And up until then, it wasn't really available to anybody. As things became more and more open, it became possible to adapt something like Lord of the Rings to television. And it was aired live one time in 1991 on Leningrad TV. And some people somehow remembered that this was a thing. And Tolkien fans across Russia in you know the last 10 years, I mean, probably since Peter Jackson's version has made things so popular, there are Russian dubbed versions of Jackson's films out there too. And fans approached Channel 5, which is what Leningrad TV more or less became, and said, you got to find this. It's in your archives somewhere. Go find it. And it took them a long time, but they did. And they very generously released it to the public on YouTube for millions of people to look and see. In terms of the actual production, they uh, apparently borrowed costumes from various Shakespeare productions. So that accounts for the unique look of these characters <laughs> or, or the not so unique look. Um, some people looked at the costumes and said, that's clearly Othello. Like that's, that's clearly an Othello costume. So that was a funny, funny bit. The other notable piece about this production is that it's mainly a vehicle for the rock band Aquarium. The score <laughs> was composed by Andrei Romanov and just a little bit about Aquarium and also about what making art in Soviet Russia was like pre-Glasnost. In the 1970s and 80s, rock and roll was also strictly regulated by the Soviet government. And only a few artists were approved and signed by the government label Melodia. And pretty much everyone else was relegated to these private apartment concerts that only a handful of people got to see. Aquarium eventually became a legitimate band and was booked for concerts in the real world once things started to open up. So the timing of Aquarium being more widely available to the public and Lord of the Rings being more widely available to the public happened at about the same time. So if you're wondering how it's possible that people looked at Lord of the Rings and said, you know what this really needs? It really needs a rock and roll soundtrack by a Soviet band. It's because the people creating this project were embracing the possibility that Western art forms and Western stories could belong to the Russian people with their own particular interpretation of it. We have parts one and two available to us sort of interesting to imagine what this would have been like as a full TV show. And maybe we'll get a taste of that when Amazon releases their TV series version of Lord of the Rings sometime in the next decade. But mainly, I just wanted to note, this came out in 1991. And Peter Jackson started filming 
Fellowship of the Ring and, you know, the whole Lord of the Rings package in 1999. So like eight years, there's eight <laughs> years of difference between this Russian version and the version we consider a forever classic. I'm glad you brought this up because I was recently reading about a Russian sequel to the Lord of the Rings called The Last Ring Bearer by Kirill Eskov. Have any of you guys heard of this before? David, have you heard of this novel before? I've, I've heard of it. I don't know much about it. Okay, well, I was reading a review for it on wearethemighty.com, which appears to be a U.S. military propaganda type site. So keep that in mind while I read this. But it was called Russia's Lord of the Rings is the story from Mordor's point of view by a writer named Blake Stilwell. And in it, he says, in 1999, Russian author Kirill Eskov penned The Last Ringbearer, a version of The Lord of the Rings written from the view of Sauron's forces. This alternative view of the saga features a lot of common historical ideas from the real Earth's 20th century applied to the fictional universe created by Tolkien, a departure from the Hobbit propaganda, the Deep State, a.k.a. Dwarves, <laughs> would have you believe. The Last Ringbearer is meant to counter Hobbit propaganda that wants you to think that Gandalf and elves are anything but thieves and war criminals. <laughs> it goes on to say, quote, While readers of The Lord of the Rings were led to believe Mordor is an evil place, desolate and dedicated to the destruction of the world of men, The Last Ringbearer wants you to know the glorious world of Mordor was filled with engineers and artisans on the brink of a new industrial revolution, whose beauty was cut down in its prime by the imperialist pigs led by the elves allied with the elvish puppet Aragorn. <laughs> I think I think Denethor of Gondor would agree with that elvish puppet uh, Aragorn, but that that's for a different movie. Okay, so let's talk about this movie. What did you guys think? I'm glad I knew going in that this was like a made-for-TV film because it it really kind of reminded me of what would happen if you let some kids have a heyday at a cable access station and try <laughs> to create Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of my reaction to it, too. Like, that Russian hobbit dancing, that was hilariously terrible. It's glorious. I love it. It's, it's... But the whole thing, it had bad sort of wooden acting and bad costumes, bad set design, <laughs> bad wigs. I, yeah. What was really bad was, like, the they had, like, obviously had a green screen but didn't know how to use it. Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. So this whole film, much like The Ring of Power itself, is a cautionary tale in mm -hmm. just because you have the power to do something doesn't mean you should necessarily do it. For example, <laughs> Gollum in this was green. He was all in green, and he was shot against a green screen. So, like, as soon as they used a green screen with him... He just disappeared. <laughs> it's like he put the ring on. <laughs> this, this, I, I can't, I mean, my, my, my 17 year old daughter watched this with me and we just couldn't help but like laugh out loud at, at, at some of the weird things that happened in there and the sound effects. 
Okay, I think at that period of time in Russia, Russia was still stuck in the 70s because those sound effects were were pure 1970s gold. And so were some of the light effects that they had around the candles. You could tell they used one of those filters. Yeah, they used a uh, star filter. (laughs) Yes, the star filter was very popular in this Lord of the Rings version, and I loved it. (laughs) On the other hand, what I really want to know is, David... Uh-oh. How was it seeing Tom Bombadil on screen? Was it everything you hoped it would be and more? Well, you know, one thing this does have in its favor is it is an ad- adaptation that shows Tom Bombadil, shows the Barrow Whites, briefly shows the attack of the wargs. The demented clown Barrow White. Yeah, the demented clown Barrow White. <laughs> That's not how you picture them from the reading from reading the book. <laughs> and then there were lines like Pippin, strong as an ox, and Gandalf is like, winter is coming. And not in a Game of Thrones way, but as in a, we ran out of summer before we shot the exteriors. And speaking of winter, the hobbits on a sled, that was a train wreck. You just couldn't look away from. Yeah. Yeah. My question is, would they have continued making them had the Soviet Union not fallen? And did this cause the fall of the Soviet Union? <laughs> I, I think it's a legitimate question. Well, you know, it's funny, like a lot of the reviews and articles that came out when the video, you know, was released on YouTube, a lot of them said this is clearly like an evidence of a society that is broken. You know, like only <laughs> only a society on the verge of collapse could produce something like this. Yeah, it's so true. It's kind of like they were left alone in the TV station and they were like, hey, we can get actors from the Bolshoi because, you know, all the operas are canceled. Hey, hey, send us over that diva to be Goldberry because, you know, she's not doing anything because there's a revolution. I just want to know if she had a diva moment off camera like, this is bullshit. I can't believe you hired me to sing my sing here and, and amongst this garbage, you know. did anybody else watch it without the subtitles like i very intentionally decided i don't i want to just see whether they get the beats or the feel of the story correct and i thought that if i were reading the translations the whole time that i wouldn't you know feel whether they understood tolkien or not i would be too caught up on like that's a weird translation of that line or whatever so i watched it without the subtitles i'm just gonna say for the record they did not quite get it. They didn't, they just didn't quite understand what Tolkien was about. I, I would venture to say that about 90% of the people that were in that film did not read the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I got to say, when it comes to characters like Frodo wearing a green shirt in front of a green screen, the demented barrow white clown, like, Prague rock Tom Bombadil to the rescue and like the inn of the prancing pony having a sing-along in Bolshoi opera style. The incredibly Rubenesque slip of a woman that Galadriel is. I mean, the whole thing has this weird hypnotic quality. I say if you got some good Hobbit pipe weed and an, a free evening... This is your entertainment. 
Can I just state that some of the makeup in there looked like straight people trying to do drag queen makeup? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the, what... the quote. Like when we, when we sell this episode, it'll be like, this is what this was about. <laughs> it was so glorious. It was like straight people doing drag queen makeup. <laughs> I'll just throw out that while we can appreciate it as the best junior high uh, homemade video ever. <laughs> <laughs> To some extent, it, it it points out how good other adaptations have been in, in terms of the writing. Because I could imagine a better produced uh, with actual costumes and, and not having Tom Bombadil look three times the size of the hobbits or something like that. That was bizarre. Um, <laughs> but I could imagine somebody taking a adaptation of the story like this and turning it into a movie to try and simplify and you, you know you know get some get some of the different pieces uh, in different orders um and and to have the faithful adaptations relatively faithful adaptations we've had uh this this makes you uh a happier for those let's put it that way we, we <laughs> so, could we could have had a real we could have had a real movie with a similar somewhat similar storyline as as this one <laughs> so you said the words, you know, junior high production, and I failed to mention this when we talked about The Hobbit for, you know, three straight weeks. But when I was in middle school, I was in a stage version of The Hobbit. Wait, I was back. wait, wait. How? You can't just drop a bomb like that. How, we've been doing The Hobbit for like three weeks. How is this just coming up now? Um, shame. And then, and then I saw the Russian version and I'm like, oh, okay, this is worth mentioning. If we're going to talk about, about this theater production, I might as well mention I was Balin. And we did a middle school adaptation of The Hobbit. We inserted some of the songs from the Rankin and Bass version into, or used that melody because the theatrical text just has the words to the songs and you get to choose choose your own tune to sing them to. But um, it it is so much like this. I mean, if you can picture maybe, I mean, like all of the dwarves were played by a mix of genders. So, you know, Bomber was played by a guy, but I was Balan and we all had the same like dollar store costume beard and like <laughs> felt capes. I mean, like it was the, the production values of our, our, you know, Percocy, Pennsylvania production of The Hobbit was pretty much the same as, as what you saw in for Russian TV. That's so awesome. <laughs> Is it time for for another meal? One of one of our nine meals during this season. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. It's been a while since luncheon, so um, that's right. I need to pick me up. Well, I think this meal will really serve as a pick-me-up. It is afternoon tea. We've talked about how Tolkien's works were inspired as much by the Victorian dietary habits as they were medieval cuisine, and this is certainly the case here. Afternoon tea, popular in Britain, picked up from, of course, India, which has a long tradition of cultivating tea and consuming it particularly in the afternoon a practice that's spread throughout Asia. Both Chinese and Japanese tea ceremonies are very well known. There is also a long tradition 
of Russian tea. Russian tea is traditionally prepared in what is known as a samovar, which is a large metal urn. These urns can be made out of iron or copper, brass or bronze. Many, many prized samovars are made out of silver. There have been some made in gold, tin, nickel, you name it. Basically, it is a large metal urn that is heated by coal or kindling at the bottom. More modern ones are, you know, electric, but traditionally there'd be, you create a fire at the bottom and there's a chimney that runs up the center where the hot air escapes and heats the water. At the very top, there was a ring where the zavarka would go, which is the highly concentrated tea, usually comes in a brick form. And then you would dilute the tea in a 10 to 1 ratio with the hot water from the samovar. The origins of samovar are unknown, but in 1989, a samovar was found in Azerbaijan that was estimated to be about 3,600 years old. Modern samovar manufacture in Russia really began in 1778 when two brothers from a metalworking family, the Lizitsin family, established the first samovar factory in Tula, Russia. I did not have a samovar. So I used loose leaf tea, steeped it extremely long to get it nice and dark. Black tea is what you want. And then I sweetened it the traditional Russian way with a heaping teaspoon of jam. Then set it out with finger food and cakes. And there you have it. Russian tea. That's what I paired with the Russian Fellowship of the Ring. Now let's get into the more modern version of the Fellowship of the Ring from 2001. Take it away, Rosie. First of all, I want to mention 2001 was the year I was pregnant with my oldest daughter and had her, which uh, her name is Casey. Or, I'm sorry. Let me rewind that. My, my child is non-binary, their name is Casey. And Casey was born in 2001, shortly after 9-11, which was the big event that year. But there were other things uh, that were going on as well. The summer of 2001 has often been called the uh, summer of the shark. And there goes the shark meter. So why was it called the summer of the shark? Because of the number of shark attacks in the United States. There was a higher number than usual of shark attacks in the United States and on uh, ocean waters. So they called it the summer of the shark. <laughs> um, this was also the year that Dale Earnhardt Jr. passed. iTunes was released by Apple. Mars Odyssey was launched. The iPod was released and so was Windows XP. But the biggest event of the year were the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and also there, there was another plane that was thwarted by the passengers, but the passengers on that aircraft also passed away, unfortunately, which prompted the U.S. to invade Afghanistan. That was also the year Enron filed for bankruptcy. And just speaking before we go into the production notes, I do want to note that the, in the Oscars that year, Gladiator, Traffic, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Aaron Brockovich were the big winners that year. I remember seeing Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in the theater. 
I was, I mean, I guess like 10 or 11. So the production notes for this trilogy are a little bit difficult to deliver episode by episode since all of the films were filmed simultaneously. So instead with each episode, I'm going to try to cover a different aspect of how this project came to be, key players involved, and I'll start by talking about the money and and how this project got off the ground. So we're doing this whole little tribute to Peter Jackson from Meet the Feebles all the way through The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And it's important to note that the Lord of the Rings trilogy didn't start as, you know, a studio-funded project that they went looking to find a director for. This project started because Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh were sitting around trying to dream up an original fantasy film. And they were bouncing ideas and it just seemed like everything they came up with was like Lord of the Rings. So at some point they were just like, well then screw it. Let's just go see who's got the rights to Lord of the Rings and see if we can make that. The unfortunate part of this story is I'm going to have to talk about Harvey Weinstein, but they went to Miramax and Harvey Weinstein to find out who had the rights. Turns out that Saul Zent, remember him from when we were talking about the Bakshi adaptation? He still had the rights to the Lord of the Rings part of the story. United Artists had the rights for The Hobbit. And Peter Jackson's original concept for the films he wanted to make was a trilogy, but with part one as The Hobbit and part two and three as The Lord of the Rings, split somewhere around the middle of the two towers, not unlike what Bakshi had done. However, it proved impossible to get the rights to The Hobbit from United Artists, so they decided, okay, we're just going to make Lord of the Rings instead. As Peter Jackson continued to develop his idea for the film or films, it became clear his vision was going to exceed Miramax's budget, and Weinstein demanded that Peter Jackson cut the project down to a single two-hour film. You could imagine the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy in a two-hour movie produced by Harvey Weinstein. That's one thought. And when Peter Jackson refused, uh, Weinstein actually threatened to hand the project over to Quentin Tarantino. Again, (laughs) just picture that. (laughs) You thought Peter Jackson's version was violent and gory. (laughs) I double dare you, motherfucker. Say my precious one more goddamn time. (laughs) Uh, so anyway probably right around that time peter jackson figured out he had to go find another studio so he got an audience with bob shea at new line cinema who purchased the rights in a turnaround deal from miramax so basically covered the cost of the development up until that point but then was able to take it in a much better direction shea wanted a trilogy and that's what we got That's enough about the development piece of it. The other thing I wanted to talk about, I'm going to try to talk about the casting in each installment based upon who is featured most prominently. So for Fellowship of the Ring, I want to talk about Gandalf. Miramax originally wanted a recognizable U.S. Hollywood name for Gandalf. So they suggested Max von Sydow or Paul Schofield 
Christopher Plummer, Sean Connery, even Morgan Freeman was a Gandalf possibility, which I have to say would have been fucking awesome. I would, I would love, have been here for it. I would love <laughs> to see a version of Lord of the Rings with Morgan Freeman playing Gandalf. The only thing that New Line Cinema said was a veto on Richard Harris for the part. I think because he had already been claimed as Dumbledore, this was going to be really complicated if Richard Harris was playing both wizards. But they did start moving in the direction of looking for an English actor. So Jackson first considered Patrick Stewart for the role. But after watching clips of Stewart playing opposite McKellen, they decided to go with the latter. Interestingly enough, Christopher Lee also sent in a photo of himself wearing a wizard costume, hoping to win the role of Gandalf, but they decided to cast him as Saruman instead. Other possibilities for Saruman, there was some overlap with the Gandalf list there, Paul Schofield, but also Jeremy Irons, Malcolm McDowell, or Tim Curry was also <laughs> considered for the role of Saruman. And I think it's interesting to imagine all those actors in your head when we think about the major confrontation between the two wizards that happens in this film that is in some ways one of the main inciting events for the adventure, realizing how much evil has already assembled and taken over and how much of an uphill battle this is. That confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman is key. Part of the film, 24 minutes of it, the Moria sequence was shown at the Cannes Film Festival, was very well received. They actually like built a whole little area of the festival to look like Middle Earth. Fellowship of the Ring was released on December 19th, 2001. It grossed $47.2 million in its opening weekend and eventually made a gross of $887 million worldwide. Towards the end of its theatrical run, they inserted a little preview of the two towers as an end of the credits Easter egg. Well, I'll just start by saying I specifically went back to the theater to see it for like the fourth or fifth time just to see that two towers preview at the end of the credits. <laughs> and it was amazing. They should have done that from the beginning and done that with all the movies. I am very biased about this movie because I think of all the adaptations, all the Hobbits, all the animated or not. All of the Lord of the Rings movies, animated or not, Fellowship of the Ring is my favorite. Especially the extended, but the theatrical version of it is, is also good. I have very few complaints about this movie. I just think it's the best of any of the Lord of the Rings movies you could pull out. And that, that's including the Russian one that we've now added to that. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was afraid that it might, might beat Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, it's maybe easier to adapt because it has that built-in epicness that the Jackson Hobbit movies had to kind of make up because The Hobbit, the book, isn't that epic. Uh, and it's also just a very linear story, so it's easier to adapt than when you break off into three or four different stories at different timelines. I, I know Eric is going to talk about the Barrow Whites. I was thinking about that a little bit last night, and I was thinking, well, if you do the Barrow Whites, you have to do Tom Bombadil in some way or come up with some other way to save them. And, and I also was wondering what people would think if uh, they're being chased by one kind of wraith and then this other separate kind of skeleton, ghost, insane clown is also <laughs> hunting them. Um, now, the downside is that uh, they get to Weathertop and Aragorn just apparently has a backpack full of old rusty swords that he throws at the hobbits and says, take these. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. in the book, uh, th those come from the barrows. 
uh, their their weapons do. So um, I'm I'm very positive about this movie. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover between here and Mount Doom. Do you guys want to take a shortcut to Mushrooms or skip ahead to the Brandywine Ferry? Wait, hold on. No, we can't skip over the party. Like, actually, I mean, and the reason why we can't is because it seems that in every adaptation we see, this is a key scene that all of them try to do well. Like, I mean, even the Russian version, like, really you know, spent, you know, a good 15 minutes on this party. And and that I, I think actually, like, in terms of fans' feelings about Fellowship of the Ring, a lot of it is as is because it's grounded in the sense of what the Shire is and the stakes are established there. Like, the peace, the prosperity that the Hobbits have, like, that is what we know they're fighting for. You know, like the worlds of men, you know, like they're at war constantly. Like we never get to see a vision of the worlds of men that is, you know, peaceful and beautiful and in jeopardy. The elves seem to have their own kingdom that is, you know, untouchable and not really at risk in the same way. But like the Shire, like we can identify with that and and we want to protect it. And it, and it's interesting, you know, thinking about the Shire as the antithesis of what Mordor is. In the extended version, and I can't remember if this line's in the original, but they talk about, you know, what hobbits are like and uh, say all hobbits share a love of things that grow. It's no small thing to celebrate a simple life. And this idea of what goodness is, is growth, it's life, it's peace. And Mordor is the opposite of all of that. It's death, war, and industry. So I... We, I want to make sure we get to the adventure, but like the party in the Shire is like a huge part of what Fellowship is. Gandalf did point out that he was thankful that not a lot of people knew about the Shire because it was one of the few things that was left untouched. And it was protected because a lot of people didn't know about the Shire or know where it was. And that kind of started to set the tone for the rest of the mayhem that happened until they were able to finally leave the Shire to protect the Shire. Yeah, I don't mean to give the party the short shrift or any of that because I think there's some great stuff in the beginning. One of the additions that they made to the movies not from the book is adding Merry and Pippin in here. The scene with them playing with fireworks, that's some great levity right at the beginning. (laughs) That was so fun, and that was such a neat scene. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great addition. They weren't even mentioned in the book at the party. They're not mentioned in the party, because what is missing here is a a time jump in the book. Uh, A number of years do pass by between the party and when Frodo eventually leaves, whereas in the movie it seems like, you know, six months to a year at most between the party and when Frodo leaves. So Merry and Pippin are not at the party, although I have to say both in that scene and it continues in both some uh, obvious and less obvious ways. Them both being rich and titled young hobbits is true, uh, but Merry is always the smarter one and Pippin is more the impetuous one. Uh, And and I love how how those two actors portray that throughout the movie. Yeah, and then we don't see Merry and Pippin again for a little while. The next time we see them, Samwise and Frodo have set out on their journey. They are sort of in the border area of the Shire on Farmer Maggot's farm. 
Samwise stops because he says he's never traveled beyond this point in his life. And behind them is this ominous scarecrow. If that's not enough, they decide to cut through a cornfield. And what do we say about cornfields on this show? Don't go near them. Nothing good happens. Nothing good ever happens in a cornfield. <laughs> and so, sure enough, they enter the cornfield and they run into Mary and Pippin, or more accurately, Mary and Pippin run into them, having just stolen some of Farmer Maggot's crops. All four hobbits then have to flee through the cornfield. They fall off a cliff area, and then they're on the road and almost immediately come into contact with the first Ringwraith, who is on the road and they have to hide. They end up hiding under this giant root overhang, which is exactly how I always pictured it since I was very young reading this book. And I'm wondering, is that a false memory? Or is it exactly how I pictured it because Tolkien described it so well? Because it's almost identical to what we saw in the animated Fellowship of the Ring too. I, I would say it's how it's described in the book. Of course, in the book, Mary's not there yet, but that's, a, that's an adaptation that I understand. You know, I have probably two or two and a half decades worth of Tolkien calendars and in every artist's rendering of the scene, it's exactly the same. Does it lift from Bakshi? Yes. Does Bakshi and Jackson lift from every artist's rendering in the text itself? Yes. While we're on the subject of other scenes that seem directly lifted from the art and Bakshi, I mean, when the ringwraiths come standing over the bed, we acknowledged in the Bakshi talk about, like, it seems shot for shot what Jackson does. Yeah. I think that's the more legitimate, uh, you know, Bakshi uh, uh, lifting because that's not how it's depicted in every other version of art and, and literature related to that. So I think that does come from Bakshi. That may come from Bakshi, but then there are other moments here that are pure Jackson. Like when they arrive at Bree, the night watchman looks out a peephole and they're not there. And he then... <laughs> squats down and looks at a lower peephole that's at hobbit level i love it and then later when the ring rays show up they don't even knock they just gallop over the door and flatten him under the door like in a bugs bunny cartoon i was like when i saw that scene i was like well thank god it's so muddy in there he probably just sunk into the mud and probably didn't even kill him at all <laughs> The interaction with Mary and Pippin when they're getting the, the ale and Pippin says it comes in pints. <laughs> One of the things I really love about Jackson's adaptation is that he finds ways to keep the mood light and to inject humor and give us the sense of like, this is an adventure. This isn't like a doom and gloom war movie. This is an adventure film and light moments like that really help set the mood. But one of the things that struck me watching Fellowship again was he doesn't use humor to deflate anything. He doesn't use humor to back away from feelings. The way, like, if you're watching a Marvel movie, you'll notice, like, right when shit's about to get real, they'll crack a joke and, like, deflate the scene and deflate the tension. And Jackson's adaptation of Fellowship of the Ring does this masterful balancing act where he's able to have humor but never in a way that deflates or cheapens the emotions of the film sorry that was my digression about it comes in pints that was 
And, and see, the geek in me appreciates that scene because, you know, I know that Mary's family is in charge of all trade in and out of the Shire coming to and from Bree. And so Mary has probably been to Bree and ordered a full pint before. So he's got the inside knowledge, whereas Pippin doesn't. So that, 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 that attracts the geek in me. I like it because that was me the first time I ordered ale at a pub in England. I was like used to eight ounce bottles and cans in the U.S. I'm like, it comes in pints. That's so much more. <laughs> okay, let's jump ahead a little bit to Rivendell. And one of my favorite casting in this movie, Hugo Weaving as Elrond. I used to just call him Mr. Anderson because I could never remember his name. And that's what he called Neo. But I was like, oh, look, it's Mr. Anderson. <laughs> Yeah, right. The first time I saw him in the promo materials or whatever it was, I was like, Agent Smith is Elrond? How's that going to work? But then he was just so perfect. When I first saw it, I was like, this guy was in The Matrix and he was so good at that role in The Matrix. How could he possibly pull this off? And then when I watched it, I was like, that's why they picked him. He, you know, was more of a versatile actor than I was expecting. I really like what he brought to the role. I was expecting Elrond to be this high Eldar remote impassive type. And he brought this intensity to it. Like you have been summoned. You will reunite or you will fall. And like Gandalf, our list of allies grows thin Things like that. I always appreciate how Gimli grabs somebody else's axe to try and destroy the ring with, but, you know. I know, right? I always expect that when they are pledging their service, Aragorn's like, you'll have my sword. And Legolas is like, and my bow. And Gimli's like, and my axe. I always imagine the guy sitting next to him is like, yeah, because you broke mine. Right. <laughs> So I, I've always wondered who these, those other men are sitting around Boromir, but presumably they're other kin of Aragorns from the north. That Again, that's just me being super geeky about this. You know, I, I know Jackson was very concerned about, when you read the book, it's like a chapter and a half of pure flashback dialogue. Uh, Gandalf telling stories and Elrond telling stories and uh, other people, Legolas telling stories. And Jackson really didn't want to have a 45-minute flashback dialogue scene. And so I, I like how he handled that in a variety of ways. And, and maybe the Council of Elrond ends very abruptly, especially with Pippin's humor there. But certainly that's better than the alternative of one quarter of the movie being the Council of Elrond. <laughs> Careful. Careful, this is Peter Jackson we're talking about here. He turned one Beatles recording session into a nine-hour documentary. For all we know right now, the special 35th anniversary extended, extended, my dinner with Elrond edition of the Fellowship of the Ring might be in the works. Right, exactly. yeah. <laughs> if he made it the way he made The Hobbits, there would have been just one entire film of The Council of Elrond. <laughs> My dinner with Elrond. That's <laughs> genius. Can we have Wallace Shawn in <laughs> Wallace Shawn in The Lord of the Rings? Could you imagine? <laughs> it's interesting. Tolkien was a Arthurian scholar, and something occurred to me on this viewing that had never occurred to me before, which is that 
this entire ring quest is kind of like an inversion of the Arthurian Grail quest in that they're trying to save the kingdom by seeking out this good holy relic. And in this, they're trying to save Middle-earth by destroying an evil relic. I found that kind of interesting. But in addition to Arthurian-type mythology, it seems that Professor Tolkien had a great interest in the pre-Christian pagan British Isles animist mythology. You know, I'm thinking of things like Treebeard, who was like, I've been here long before all of you, and I will be here long after you. One of the first challenges they encounter is they have to go over the mountains. The film almost made it seem like Saruman was using magic to stop them. But in my reading of the book, it's been a long time since I read it. It almost seemed to me like the mountain was slightly anthropomorphized in a way, not unlike the frost giants in Norse mythology, that in some way the mountain had sentience and it was defying them at every pass. And that's why they had to take the route underground through the mines of Moria. Uh, it's definitely not Saruman in some sort of wizarding battle with weather. The animal spying on them is implied to be Sauron's doing, not Saruman's doing. So Sauron has a role to play here. But then uh, probably a, a bigger, not necessarily frost giants and things like that, but the bigger thing is that uh, in the creation of Arda, the, the world, Morgoth, who was Sauron's boss of old, literally corrupts the world in a variety of ways. And so I think what you're seeing there in, in terms of the, the mountain resisting their efforts to cross, you're seeing, you know, this Morgoth corrupted world trying to resist them. And evil is gaining more ground in, in the world rather than good uh, gaining ground in the world. It's a really interesting way to just think about this, because I've been thinking about whether there's like an original sin element of this not not in like an adam and eve kind of way but just in a pandora's box like a lot of mythologies have a like things were per perfect and then it fell kind of mythology and i really like the way you just described that david of you know good or evil gaining ground rather than this idea like it was good and then something happened and evil was allowed to exist yeah. but just sort of this like it started as neutral territory and things have creeped in in one place or another. After writing Lord of the Rings, going back to some of the earlier myths, Tolkien actually describes Melkor, who is in his mythology, Satan basically is, is the, the fallen angel, imbues the world with much of his power. He actually weakens himself to imbue the world with some of his corruption. And he's actually trying to corrupt creation itself Whereas Sauron is trying to rule creation, Sauron's original master, Morgoth, was trying to corrupt the very basis of the world itself. Real quick, you mentioned Melkor and Morgoth interchangeably there. Some of our listeners might need a little clarification on that point. If I got really geeky, I could say Melkor was in his angelic form to some extent, and Morgoth was when he took on more physical form and had already imbued, the, lost a lot of his power by corrupting the world. But that's getting really nitpicky. 
for the record, between Melkor and Morgoth, I prefer Morgoth yeah. because he's more goth. <laughs> Puts a whole Rock new swing on, on things. <laughs> yeah. So yes, the, the Earth is resisting them, and Sauron's spies are watching them. So, unable to cross over the mountain, they decide to go under the mountain, basically through the mines of Moria. But before they do that, they're stopped near the gates of the mines of Moria by the side of this pool. And one of the hobbits, Merry or Pippin, is throwing rocks into the water, I think. Isn't it always Pippin? It's got to be Pippin, right? <laughs> of course it's Pippin. Yeah. Yes. It's always Pippin. In the book, it's Mary, not Frodo, who's helping uh, Gandalf with the riddle of the door. So, again, showing that he was the more, like, intelligent one of the two young hobbits. But Actually, I think in the book, it was Boromir who threw the rock into the water, but it doesn't matter. Basically, it awakens the Watcher in the water, which is a monster that attacks them. <laughs> That's enough for our shark meter to go off. It's as close as a shark we're going to get, and this is the summer of the sharks, so That's right. there you go. <laughs> anyway, they managed to solve the riddle of the gate and gain entrance to Moria just in time to escape the Watcher in the water, only to find the remnants of a massacre. A lot of dead dwarfs and... The Tomb of Balin. So to unpack the Tomb of Balin, why don't we have Balin herself tell us the story? Johanna, Balin, take it away. Well, I feel like my character is laid nobly to rest in the moonlight. I am not unsatisfied with this. I think what's interesting about it as a concept is Balin somehow gets this, like, beautiful granite tomb with the engraving while everyone else is like trying to defend themselves and getting murdered and then like maybe you know suffocating to death i mean like it's just like it's all bad and death and so the fact that they took time to bury balan at all is really kind of both a head scratcher and like also like yes this is this is a good death this is what someone like balan deserves in the books, Balin dies relatively early in the endeavor, before that final stand. And so the other dwarves have time to kind of honor him appropriately before the final stand. I'm always disappointed that Gimli seems more broken up about his somewhat distant cousin Balin, whereas his first uncle Owen uh, also dies there too, uh, as well as Ori from the Hobbit movies uh, is part of that expedition and is lying there dead somewhere one of those skeletons so why doesn't Gimli seem upset about his uncle I I don't I don't get that I'm half joking here now <laughs> you know the perception of Balin is that he was the smarter of the dwarves so I never understood what he thought was going to happen when he went to Moria that's kind of a larger issue and I know it's Tolkien picking the one dwarf from The Hobbit that had an individual character and using him for this storyline. But it, it seemed like he was smarter than to do something like try and set up a colony in, in Moria, where even Dane Ironfoot, the king under the mountain now, said no dwarf should ever go in there. But Balin's like, hey, I'll do it. 
I don't know. I, I like the scene. The book does describe having holes drilled to the surface to provide sunlight, the sunbeams into to highlight that room and things like that. So I think overall it's good. After talking about the tomb and Pippin throwing the skeleton down the well and all that kind of stuff, I have to wonder why Legolas doesn't like stab the orc in the head and then drive that orc with his knife to clear a path for them. Because it seems like that's something Legolas could do. Yeah, like, you know, fashion a skateboard out of a shield while while he's at it. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I mean... <laughs> totally. What, what's up, Legolas? You're holding back on us. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, all jokes aside, you know, obviously there's adaptations. Pippin throws the rock down the well a couple days earlier rather than right before they're attacked in the book. They should just tie Pippin up. He's nothing but a liability to the Fellowship. Well, I mean, that that is when he finally kind of grows up a little bit, right? Is is during that whole adventure and with uh, that's in Two Towers. But that is kind of like, a, oh, uh, I need to pay attention to some stuff. Yeah, I need to grow up a little bit. And, and also remember, even the smallest of us can change the course of the world. So That's my favorite quote in the whole series. That's my favorite quote, not just because I'm five feet tall. And I would point out, if Pippin hadn't roused the Balrog... Oh, sorry, this is a spoiler alert, but... Spoiler alert! Gandalf wouldn't have encountered the Balrog, let's say, and then that Balrog would have been available to attack Lothlorien once the war started. So, without Pippin's uh, being stupid... Lothlorien would have been destroyed and Galadriel killed. Gandalf says there are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world. Certainly the Balrog is one of those, as is the Watcher in the water. Possibly another one would be trolls. And in the battle that happens in Moria here, we have a troll. Now, this movie... And another movie that came out the same Christmas time as this did, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, both featured a troll. So I want to get your guys' opinion on which troll portrayal you liked better. Mm -hmm. The one in The Fellowship of the Ring or the one in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? I'm going to lose all your listeners by saying... I've never actually seen all of the first Harry Potter movie or all of any of the Harry Potter movies, so... No, you're a purist, David. We have you here on this Lord of the Rings chat because... Yeah, part of it is because I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a Lord of the Rings guy, not a Harry Potter guy. No, it's totally fine, and, and I think that Lord of the Rings was such a huge influence on J.K. Rowling's work that it would be hard to see the appearance of the troll in Harry Potter as something that's not like her doing her Rolodex of like, okay, what kinds of creatures can I add into this world? Oh, trolls. Like, yeah, that's a thing. But, you know, in terms of like, how was the battle? I mean, it's interesting that they've got two different versions of stupid trolls. In Harry Potter, the troll is portrayed as like really dumb, but independently dumb. Whereas cave trolls in Lord of the Rings are like, dumb and so they can be ordered around to do things by other people Mm -hmm. like you know the troll doesn't think independently in lord of the rings as far as we can tell or at least these cave trolls don't the trolls we see in the hobbit are different trolls right sure mountain trolls versus cave trolls you know the harry potter troll was basically there to fuck shit up 
he was just there to cause destruction and destroy baby wizards where the troll in, in Lord of the Rings was created for a sole purpose. And so he was orderable. He was, you know, trainable, I guess, in, in a way. They both did kind of look alike, different colors, but I think the one in the Lord of the Rings seemed to be a little bit harder to kill than the one in Harry Potter. I think one of the things I like about Lord of the Rings is that the encounters get increasingly more dangerous and the battles more epic as mm -hmm. the series goes on. So like the encounters with the Nazgul are at one level and then this is sort of the next level of battle and then we're going to get an even more intense encounter at the end of Fellowship and then and then we're like really off to the races mm -hmm. with two towers. But I see this is part of that gradual ramping up, which Tolkien does so well. I think if he threw us in with like, it's an all out war, it's chaos, then I don't think he would build in us both the belief in the power of these individual beings to cause havoc so that when you get the huge epic scale of like 10,000 orcs, like, you know how much damage one can do. So the multiplying effect works better. Even how difficult it is for the band to get through this relatively minor encounter with one troll and, I don't know, like a few hundred goblins or, or something. You know, like even that, it takes, you know, it's high stakes, you know, like Frodo gets stabbed again and like seemingly like right through the middle of the chest. And you're like, how is he going to survive that one? Oh, magic mithril. Thank goodness. But, um <laughs> You know, I, I like the the way the battle is portrayed in Jackson's version because he understands this ramping up. Mm -hmm. So it does get a little touch and go there, and you're wondering how are they going to defeat all these goblins when something fouler and darker shows up, something that scares even the goblins away, and that is the Balrog. Going back and re-watching this after having seen Thor Ragnarok, which came out a decade and a half later almost... I have to say that Searcher, the way he was depicted in Thor Ragnarok, bears quite a resemblance to the Balrog as depicted here in The Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm wondering if perhaps they both had a common mythological origin. Yeah, I do. I have to admit, I, I don't know. I've um, not seen that... Um... Tolkien lists or, or discusses inspirations for the Balrog. They seem, uh, if you've seen the movie Tolkien uh, about his youth and then time in World War One, that movie makes the point that perhaps something he saw on the battlefield was an inspiration for the Balrogs. And his concept of Balrogs changes throughout his life. Uh, they were smaller and, and less powerful, but more numerous early on. And then eventually he decides on, uh, you know, no more than nine of these gigantic fire demons that were very powerful. He was well read in all the Germanic and Norse and British mythologies and folktales, so uh, that's all mixing up in his head somewhere, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen or read anything where the Balrogs were directly inspired by any one thing. Can we leave Moria now? You shall not pass! <laughs> okay, now we can leave Moria. I just, we, we had to say that. We did. <laughs> Totally had to say that. And can I tell you how many times I used that phrase on my kids to keep them out of stuff when they were growing up? I mean, they'll both tell you I use that against them all the time. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like, you can't get into the everything in the bathroom. You shall not pass. <laughs> You're three. <laughs> As we're exiting Moria, what I do really appreciate about the encounter and Gandalf sacrificing himself is how real the grief feels that everyone carries with them for the rest of the film. You know, everyone is a little more disheartened and a little heavier without Gandalf there. And also the leadership starts to kind of fall apart. You know, you sort of get the sense that Gandalf was the person holding this all together. You know, all of these different people, you know, elves, dwarves, men, hobbits, that Gandalf was keeping them all in line. And then after Moria, that's when the fellowship starts to dissolve. After Moria, they make their way to Lothlorien, the elven forest. And this is where I have a nitpick with the extended edition. Basically, Lothlorien is golden-hued as it's described in the book. That's how it appears in the film. Except there's one scene right in the middle where no time has passed, where suddenly it's this cyan color, which just doesn't match with the way Lothlorien is supposed to look, or does look. Yeah, and I, I think that... You know the scene in the in the first night up in the trees with uh, Haldir is in the books, and I appreciate putting that deleted scene in, but they needed to do a better better job of editing that in the extended edition because it's also re there's actually dialogue that's repetitive between Haldir finding them, Haldir up in the tree, and then Galadriel later on. So that's one extended scene that I'm I'm sort of like yes, I appreciate you put this in, but at the same time, it feels not edited well through that part. And now for one of the best casting in this film, Kate Blanchett as Galadriel. Wait, what? Galadriel is Elrond's mother-in-law? Yes, yeah. El Elrond's wife was uh, Galadriel and Caliborn's daughter. Damn. All right, that is interesting trivia. I'm so glad you're here, David. <laughs> so this is... One of the only places where I'll say I liked the Bakshi version better. I don't like, I'm, it's hard to explain why, except every time I watch this scene with Galadriel and she had, like, when Kate Blanchett does it and she's like, oh, I'm going to be all powerful. And then she's like, I passed the test. Now I'm going to fade away. Like, I never, I never quite got it. Like, it, it just, it felt confused about what does she mean by she passed the test? Did she Thank mean she, she passed the test and proved that she's unworthy to stick around and, and rule because she's too power hungry, so she has to, like, fade away? Or did, is passing the test a positive thing? Like, I just, like, I, I kind of lost the beat in this version. And every time I watch it, I try, I'm like, this time I'm going to get it. And I still don't. I, hopefully David will be able to fix this. But somehow I got it in the Bakshi version. I watched it and I'm like, okay, I understand what you, I understand the feeling here. <laughs> Sorry, Rosie. <laughs> you know, I noticed that whenever the ring was presented to somebody really powerful throughout the series, they really had to struggle not to take it. And I was wondering if that was, quote unquote, the test that she was talking about because I really didn't understand that scene either but I noticed that Gandalf was like don't tempt me with that like don't try to give that to me don't tempt me with that and then you know when she refuses she's like okay I passed the test 
Yeah, that's what it is. I've heard other people mention they don't understand this scene, and I always wondered why, because the books and the movies make very clear that these rings of power are corrupt. They corrupted the Ring Rays, they corrupted Smeagol, they almost corrupted Bilbo. Gandalf said, don't give it to me, I would become very powerful and terrible with my power. Boromir wants the ring to restore Gondor to glory and to fight Mordor. And now we have Galadriel saying, don't give it to me. I would be fearsome and terrible if I had it. Mm -hmm. What I don't get is that she wears one of the three rings for the Elven Kings. She already wears a ring of power. How has she not already been corrupted by it? So the three rings uh, were not touched at all by Sauron. Sauron had a part in making the dwarf rings and the rings for men and the one ring, obviously. But uh, presumably the elf rings were not touched by Sauron, although they're still tied to the fate of Sauron's ring. And I've never quite understood the distinction there. So what? He subcontracted out the elven rings? <laughs> yeah. So so he worked with... Uh, you know, actually, Every kiss begins with K. Actually, if you, if you get into it, it's uh, a, a grandson of Fianor, who's, you know, a legendary elf crafter of, of ancient... He's the one that made the Silmarils. So one of his grandsons, when Sauron was an attractive man, before he became this ugly demon figure, he convinced Fianor's grandson to help him make these magic rings. And supposedly, Fianor's grandson by himself made the elf rings... And they work together on the others. But then I'm still, I am always confused as that, okay, so why are the elf rings influenced by the one ring? But it it does make the point that the elves can use their rings as long as Sauron doesn't have his ring. So when he had the rings, when when Sauron had his ring, the elves weren't using them. But then uh, when he lost it, the elves started using those to try and preserve and protect their elf kingdoms is the way it goes. Way way it's talked about with Galadriel, I think the Bakshi version. Like I said, I think the Bakshi screenplay is great. I think that's more true to the book. But I think here Jackson is uh, again kind of showing the power to corrupt and how how even good people can be uh, corrupted for evil. Arguably, at this point in Middle Earth history, Galadriel might be the most powerful force of good in the world. Now, I've gotten into arguments with other geeks online about if that's the case or not, but I can certainly make the case that Galadriel is the most powerful force of good in Middle-earth by that point, and the ring would turn her into a very powerful evil force. So I think Jackson is showing that. And I think the longer thing, and I don't know that Jackson's trying to imply this, this is me reading into it, is the whole reason Galadriel comes, you know, she was in Valinor uh, originally and comes back to Middle-earth um, because she is seeking power. She wants to have dominion and power and a kingdom of her own, uh, and that is her own personal Galadriel original sin. So for her to then deny this ability to become the power of Middle-earth, she passes the test and is finally atoning for the wrongs she did in youth. Galadriel has this scrying pool that she has the hobbits look into and tell her what they see. And when Frodo looks into it, suddenly, bam, there's the Eye of Sauron looking right back at him. So 
what's the deal here? Because this isn't a Palantir, I didn't think, but suddenly it's a two-way thing. I think that's the influence of the ring. It's been a while since I've read this passage in Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. It does imply that Sauron is setting his eye towards Lorien as well. Uh, but I think that's because of the ring. I don't. I don't think he could take over Galadriel's pool if the ring wasn't sitting right there beside it. Yeah, I agree with David. I think these are are special connections between Sauron and the ring that allows him to find it more easily. You know, especially if there's a scrying pool or a palantir nearby, but that he might have been looking there anyway. Okay, let's get to the breaking of the fellowship. So toward the end of the film here, Boromir is overcome by lust for the ring and attempts to take it from Frodo when Frodo realizes that he's got to go this alone. But just then, a band of Urukai start closing in on them and Sean Bean gallantly holds them off so that Frodo and Sam can escape. Now, I don't want to have any spoilers here, but there are certain things you can expect when Sean Bean straps on some medieval armor. That's right. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Love me some Sean Bean. Love me some Sean Bean. Loved him. Loved him in Game of Thrones and so and many Goldeneye. Yes. Ah. Oh my gosh. Yes, he was so fine. Mm. Well, Rosie, you're probably going to have to find <laughs> maybe another franchise <laughs> to start watching. <laughs> well, they found ways to sneak Bormir into the extended edition of, of Two right. Towers. So, you That's know, true. he's he's not, you know, gone a little bit, but not forgotten. Also, one of the best death scenes in like all of cinema. I mean, this is now probably like the 15th time that I've seen Fellowship of the Ring. And every time I cry, it's just, I mean, they totally nailed it. I don't know whether the book is, it, I can't remember the passage in the book, but I remember the, the death scene in the movie shot for shot. There are scenes of Jackson's Lord of the Rings that are more or less just visualizations straight out of the book. There are adaptations that I will complain about. This is an adaptation where, and true Tolkien fans will send me hate mail for this, this is better than the book. Because in the book, because Tolkien writes from the Hobbit point of view, and sometimes from the Gimli point of view, it actually plays out over three different chapters. The last chapter in Fellowship, the first chapter in Two Towers, and then like another chapter in Two Towers, and it's not till that third time through when Pippin is recalling it while running with the orcs that you actually see Boromir fighting to defend the hobbits. It's actually relatively confusing in the book the first time through. Aragorn doesn't have his conversation with Frodo, which I think is a great addition to the movie. Aragorn misses the entire battle. He, he runs up to take a look at the scene, at the seat of scene, and he misses the entire title battle, and then... He runs down and finds Boromir near death with many arrows sticking out of him. And you're just like, what the heck just happened? Because we haven't seen any of that yet if, as a reader. Uh, so this is one area where Jackson and Walsh's adaptation, I think, is an improvement on the book. Okay, another nitpick here. 
Aragorn, Legolas, they're fighting orcs when all of a sudden they hear, and Legolas is like, the Horn of Gondor. Wait a minute. We've never established the Horn of Gondor. How do they know what the Horn of Gondor sounds like? How do they know Boromir's in trouble? Somehow we're just supposed to assume they know what this horn sound is. When I watched the movie last night, I was like, where did that horn come from? And where was it this whole movie? <laughs> it, it just kind of threw me off. And then, and then when I saw who was blowing the horn, I was like, oh. Well, to be fair, they've spent a lot of time trying to sneak past people. Like they've True. spent a lot of time trying to not attract attention. And so this is the first time that someone in the fellowship is like, over here. Yeah. yeah. Don't get your ass over here. <laughs> and, and we don't know in Rivendell when they're gearing up, if, if uh, Legolas isn't like, Hey, Boromir, what's that horn do? Oh, let me show you. And so <laughs> that could have happened off camera. That's not, that's yeah. very possible. <laughs> The death scene is very well done. You know, we've lost Gandalf. The party's breaking up. We've lost Boromir, who was a troubled character, like not necessarily someone we would have wanted to stick around the Fellowship, but gets a good soldier's death. And then the funeral where they push the boat out over the waterfall is so well done that there is this kind of sense of finality when you get to the end of Fellowship of the Ring. I mean, I'm really glad that they adapted the other two books, but if they hadn't, I would have said, wow, that was a really excellent adaptation of Fellowship of the Ring, and I'm very satisfied. <laughs> I'm I'm satisfied with, with the, the sense of this part of the journey is complete. There is a new part of the journey that's starting under different circumstances, Two of the hobbits are off on their own. Mm -hmm. The other two hobbits are captured. And then we have our three star warriors mm -hmm. in a glory group off to go rescue them. It feels like, okay, I can wait a year for the next chapter mm -hmm. and it won't drive me insane. That's pretty much how I felt after I'd watched it the first time. I was like, oh, okay, this is enough closure for me. I can deal. I can live through the months I have to live through until I can see the next installment. But, oh, gosh, just such a wonderful film. I, I could watch it 15 more times. Mm. This is absolutely the movie that I have seen the most times in my life, both theatrical and extended. And I've seen the extended in the theater at least twice, if not three times now, at various event showings. So um, this, is, this is just a fantastic movie. Uh, and I will point out that finality, the seeing the three different groups of people from the Fellowship, Again, that's not the Fellowship of the Ring book ends with Frodo and Sam sailing across the lake, and you have no idea <laughs> that the attack from the Urukai even happened uh, when you when you get to the end of Fellowship of the Ring of the Book. So uh, again, just a, um, a really great job adapting a rather confusing part of the book into this movie. A personal story, my parents didn't have any experience with Lord of the Rings uh, before these movies came out. And my younger brother, who was still living with them at the time, uh, he decided that on various car trips and in the evenings, he was reading the Lord of the Rings to them to get ready for the movies. And through the wonders of the internet, we had already heard pretty well that it was going to include the death of Boromir in the movie, in Fellowship of the Ring, which isn't in the Fellowship of the Ring book. And so my brother actually asked me, Dave, should I read the first chapter of Two Towers to them before the movie? And I was like, no. <laughs> finish the film and, and let that ending in the movie be a shock to my parents then you know read them two towers so they can get the book version of that and and i remember um 
I happened to see it with my parents when it first came out, and my parents were shook by that scene. They were like, what's going on? This wasn't in the book. And I'm like, it is. You just haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it was uh, great for uh, people that didn't know what was going on as well to have that emotional blow at the end. So. There's so much more we could talk about that we probably did talk about and I probably cut out in the editing room because as it is, this is going to be the Peter Jackson extended cut of our Geek Channel 8 podcast. (laughs) (laughs) After the show. (laughs) Yeah. So if you don't don't want to have a long, amazing experience and discussing it with your friends for hours on end, watch the Russian version. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we've gone so far over time. I'm not even going to remind you to like and subscribe and do all that kind of stuff this time. I'm just going to say until next time. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. This is David. And this is Eric signing off. And about how small we are and the stars are so big. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) have you even met me?